are going live. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, it's Value After Hours. I'm Tobias Carlisle, joined as always by Jake Taylor and Bill Brewster. What's happening, fellas? Anything interesting happening in the markets this week? Equities are going to zero. Bonds going to zero. Oil going up. Oil going to infinity. The, the oil and the dollar are in a race against each other to infinity. Uh, and then everything else is going to zero. What is the significance of the dollar racing up? I see people talking about that a lot, but I don't really know what that's all about. Well, if you are in an emerging market and your debt is paid in dollars, that's not great. And if you're buying commodities in dollars, that's also not great. So other than the fact that emerging markets are getting a proper fucking nothing. Yeah, that's tough. To... That's rough. That's not good. It's a, it's very sad. No. What time is it, Toby? Did, did you do the did you tell everyone on the worldwide? It's oh, I forgot. It's 10 30 a.m. on the West Coast. Okay. We were all waiting. I was waiting for the other shoe to drop there. Sorry. Uh there's some, uh, there's some good, uh, let me just give a shout out to, we've got Miami, Glenview, Nashville, Santa Monica, Texas, Dublin Island, uh, Brandon, Ontario, Canada, Barcelona, what's happening? South Dakota, North Dakota, Edinburgh, I'm, Aussie uh, and Liechtenstein, Carlsbad. I'm, I'm repping, repping Omaha this week. Uh, that's where I'm broadcasting from. So it's from Warren's uh, spare bedroom. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's, it's a little <laughs> needs a little bit more capex <laughs> get it up to stairs. Very not to his spare bedroom. That's probably exactly what it looks like. Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> what's uh, what's on the uh, agenda today, gents? Well, I've got a little piece prepared that uh, maybe. So on the nose that it's almost cliche, but it's about uh, it's about use metal detecting. So we will see. It's about metal detecting. Yeah. Okay. Nice. I've got two. Uh, one is via Steve Clapham, who's uh, my British forensic accounting mate uh he's behind got the couple, balance sheet behind the balance sheet he's got a couple of uh nice papers on quality i just wanted to go through um go through those and the other one interesting tweet out of uh, zero hedge about the quoting some uh, bank of america uh, analyst who, who said that the average bear market is about 289 days they've come up with a date for the end of it october 22 yeah, good. So we got two thirds of the move left, and then uh, they say oh. about three thousand on SPY, and I and I um, I just thought it was funny because it's like roughly, you know, not, there's no science to this, and this is complete speculation. But I just thought it was similar to that. Like I think that they run bear markets run about eighteen months to two years, and I think if you if you think about it as starting in February last year when the kind of all of the growth stuff started selling off, I get to roughly the same date, like. You know, Q end of Q3, beginning of Q4. Like this is my best case scenario, and uh, so there's just pain until then. So I'm just going to talk about that a little bit. What do you guys yeah. got? What do you got? I don't know what to do with positions that you like that you own, though, right? Like I don't know. Like everything in me thinks that we could go. You know, I mean, how I was talking about the melt up. Like I could see a meltdown in a very real way. I don't know what you do about with that information. 
I think we're yeah. Well, that's sort of what that's sort of what I like. I don't know. Nobody knows. I'm I'm purely speculating. But it does feel like we're in more of a this is more of a bear market than we've seen in 2016, 18, 20. 20. Oh yeah, this is the real thing. This feels like the real thing. Yeah, this is the real thing for what, sure. What makes you feel differently than the other ones? Uh, it's taking longer. Yeah, no, I mean, one, I, th- I think that it was not, uh, it's not a secret that like we kind of need bear markets, right? So like, I do think it's a natural uh, part of, of how market, but I think, you know, with the Ted, with the Fed tightening, and fiscal monetary or fiscal policy getting tighter as well. Um, And then you've got inflation and potentially oil doesn't stop ripping and you've got like food prices. I mean, God only knows where I am. I am certain, which means probably 51% uh, degree (laughs) of confidence uh, that uh, like, emerging markets are going to have a recession, uh, especially importing emerging markets. Exporting emerging markets probably have a reasonably good go of it here. Um, I think it's it's funny that like after a decade or plus of emerging markets getting, you know, hammered, that they're back into this sort of... This like, is why I don't really like emerging markets. <laughs> like when I followed Bud or AB InBev, all I ever remember was like, there's always something in some emerging markets that's screwing that company. Always. Mm. I, I mean, I don't care what year it is. There's some markets that are just like decimated. Um, throw that on top of brands that are losing relevance and it's not a great combo. Um, you, you mean that though, in terms of their market, right? That's their, in terms of yeah. what selling it to you. Why would, why would beer get, why would it be a be tough selling beer into an emerging market? Well, there's always like commodity inflation that hits them or some like economic weakness and you're fighting like hyperinflation in some geography and then you've got your debt payable in USD. It's a mess. Political risk. And a lot of the, I guess a lot of the emerging markets that they're serving into, like they don't have deep enough capital markets for those guys to issue debt in local currency. Mm-hmm. So like you're always trying to like, catch up against the dollar. So in, in today's environment, right, where a lot of their uh, revenues are foreign and you're trying to report in dollars and pay in dollars, like, I mean, who the hell I was, knows? I was told Bitcoin solves this. It used to. Turns uh, out yeah. it was all just a liquidity trade. Speaking oh. of Bitcoin, that uh, MicroStrategy has some uh, amount of their Bitcoin holdings against a, uh, a margin loan. And I thought that, that, I thought that the, the magic number there was like 2,100 on Bitcoin. And we went through that this morning. Thousand. I think the fine print is he just needs to contribute some collateral. I don't think this is like a true uh, okay. collateral call. I saw some talk yesterday that they had shifted like $45 million into some sort of account. I don't... Honestly, I didn't have any context for that. I don't know if that what that's like relative to their holdings. That could be virtually nothing. I did see the clip that was playing yesterday where he's like, uh, you should margin, you should like figure out a way to lever your house to buy Bitcoin and you should buy Bitcoin. That's only on a few leverage. months ago, that you one. Should, yeah. Like, I don't that's know. Terribly be careful who you pray to. Yeah. I feel like I'm terribly irresponsible right now. I'm, I'm in, you know, I, I've got this fucking Microsoft position and even Berkshire, like 
look, there's a world where inflation isn't great for Berkshire's reinvestment opportunities, right? Those rails, they do require a lot of capital. The energy business does. I mean, you get some regulated returns, no doubt, but like, I don't know, man. I don't know what you do with these positions that you own for a while. I'd I don't think you can trade it up to the index That's, winning again. I, I've looked at this over and over again for, I've looked at this as many Your different ways as I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> Since like 20 years of looking at like, how do you, how you can avoid, they're just not avoidable. There's just no way to consistently get in and out. But I think you just want, every time you put something on, you got to imagine that you're going to ride it through a bear market. And so then you think about like what sort of stuff you want to ride through a bear market. What I've mentally done is I've shifted Microsoft into a long duration bond mm. allocation, which, you know, do I want to take long duration risk? I, I actually kind of do. I don't actually, I, I long-term sort of short rates, but I can get there in multiple ways. None of are great for the economy. Um, I think you could get like four or five of those top names. You, you, you buy them when, they, when there's systemic weakness. Like, so when any time the fear and greed goes under 20, you can probably buy those and you'd be okay. I mean, it's I'll tell you what, Amazon has actually gotten waxed. I, th- I, think the, I think the Reaper is coming from Microsoft and Google. Well, I think the Reapers. Google's, Google uh, sort of seems to trade reasonably fairly valued to me. It never seems to get like, it doesn't get that silly multiple on it. But adver- here's the thing. Advertising has like a one and a half X beta to the economy. Mm. Like if you think that ad spend doesn't come in in a recession, I'm going to tell you that I think you're a little disconnected from reality. I think that what has happened over the last sort of 20 years is there's been that trans- transition the from digital. the old. Yeah, the transition yeah. from television to digital sort of masks a little bit because it was all growing so fast. But no doubt it's probably getting closer to saturation now. So there's it'll be it'll be more pronounced this time around. I think that's right. And and you could still say that oh you're going to take share or whatever. Okay. But like you're not going to you're not going to avoid a recession. Not not at this kind of size. So, that's it. I don't even know if that's there's okay. a freaking recession coming. And I don't I, even know I what that means. Those those recession indicators like by the time they come out and tell you that there's a recession on like they're like there's a re- they, we, we we were we in were a in and we're not now. Yeah, now, 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 we're, now we're out. Now we're good yeah. to go. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. I think that the uh, the inversion it's not the it's not the Cam Harvey inversion it's the ten two inversion not the ten yeah today inversion. got bad I don't know what that you know I don't know whether any of those are significant I think someone told me it was like a it's a funding whatever I don't know but it does seem to be a reasonably consistent indicator and that was I think it was April that it inverted the ten two which would seem to suggest that that real six carnage month, uh, which would put you into yeah, your October October yeah. It's I all lining a, up. I do think that a, <laughs> there are a few things that are lining up for like a, a, a you know, a, a gigantic bed shitting around that kind of period of time. Jesus, rates have just exploded over the last and the ten years, well, fourteen days. I saw mortgage rates are like over six percent now too, which is like that's the long like run double. Name. Yeah, that's yeah. wild, huh? That's a big move. That's crazy. I, you know, I don't know. This this doesn't feel like the most fun thing in the world to say, but I'm really glad that they're actually doing this. Uh, I don't, I don't we're, think we're pumping you, up the rights. Yeah. I think, I think putting a break on, on housing when it's going parabolic, like it was, is like a good policy decision. Uh, now, can you, can you do it without breaking everything? Whoa, Austrian. <laughs> well, that's not, I don't know that it's necessarily Austrian. No. Investment it, listen, anything, anything so that isn't just blue. like 
MMT full throttle pedal to the metal is now Austrian. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Two camps. The pro- it's the definitely going to slow. The, like so. this austerity, like they call it austerity. Like, so you, you, like, like Jake says, like you have, you're either just flooding the market with liquidity and then everything that comes out of that is good, even though it's like, that's what sets up the conditions for the big crash. And then they finally just go back to like normal normalization oh that's austerity like anything yeah how could you like do that to us billions of dollars well, we're still running multi-trillion dollar deficits but uh, how could you do that to us we're still doing qe we're going to do qe at the same time we do qt somehow i think that- uh, is, is some some <laughs> of what i think is uh, a little misplaced and i do think we've been saying this for a while i don't think this is a new statement I, you know, I've seen a lot of like calls for housing crashes, and I just really don't think that's how the world manifests itself. I think the lack of mobility is the most probable outcome here. Yeah. For humanity, for civilization, lower lower prices are better because it lets people get on the ladder. Yeah. Higher prices going up all the time. You don't like that? Sorry, boomers say that they need all their property inflated before they pass it on to the next generation. <laughs> yeah, the bag holders, the bag holder generation. <laughs> There's got to be someone there to take the bid, though. Like that's you can't you can't dump it all. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, I mean, eventually there's got to be underlying cash flows to service things, right? So like, <laughs> cash out refly, homie. That's all. That's all economy, that's that's all economy talk, right there. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. You got to get in with this new world. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, there's a part of me that understands the new world and a part of me that doesn't. Uh, so we'll see. But it is it is kind of interesting to see the store of value just be a liquidity trade at the end of the day. <sighs> yeah. That. <laughs> well, let me ask you this: Did anybody buy Bitcoin? And they wanted it to sit at whatever forty thousand, whatever it was for a while there. Like I had to move all because I want it to be a unit of account, and I want it to be a store of value, and I don't want it. No, everyone was buying it because they wanted it to go to five hundred thousand. It was nothing. There was nothing about like storage, right? It was just speculative mania. It's not over. To be fair, I mean, it could go no, no. Up. I just it could go up. The, the issue that I have with the Bitcoin thing that I've never been able to like get over in my head is they don't like belief in the U.S. government. So they're like, I don't trust like U.S. fiat or any fiat. But it's like you're putting your faith in a math problem, which is also fiat, right? Like it's just it, it happens to have uh, uh, relevance because of some mass cultural adoption, but like it's a collective belief that's not really backed up by something. I think what they're saying though is we don't like the interference in the the constant interference in the money supply. Yeah, and we would rather have some sort of algorithmic rules based method for determining. Like th- that's what the Taylor rule was supposed to be in f- for you know for, for US dollars for for fiat currencies. The Taylor rule gives you these um, outputs that seem to make a lot more sense to me anyway. It's like a, I'm not a, not a macroeconomics guy, but I, I look at what the numbers that that spits out and I'm like, oh, I can kind of understand how it gets there at least. Whereas what the Fed actually does with its plot. thousand PhDs like has no bearing in reality to anything that I can see. And I don't think that any of them really understand what's going on either. Yeah, I, I make, have always drug been the sympathetic. Fed, Fed president. I mean, I've always been sympathetic to the idea of 
Bitcoin. Like I, I do fundamentally like the idea. Like it, it resonates at a base level, but it's still fiat, right? It's just a belief in something. It's just yeah. it happens to be a different fiat. Yeah, that's in my I mean. head. Well, doesn't fiat means by government decree? Okay. Yeah. So then it's yes. Yeah, so then so, it's by the you, decree. But of if the if you're saying uh, it's a shared mythology, then yeah. I, I would just like a piece of paper representing U.S. dollar is. Then I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yes. But but all, the 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 counter argument that would be all currency has always been like you, whether it was conch shells or whatever it was. It, all currency is always just some sort of shared representation because we can't you know in a modern economy we can't barter services for goods it's just that's a nightmare so you need some sort of representation of the value i can't i have no marketable skills in a terrible body so i have nothing to barter (laughs) manual labor yeah and you you know gold gold at least there's no counterparty risk you bury in the backyard a thousand years time someone will dig it up and It'll still be worth something potentially. Still worth one man's suit, uh, like probably one yeah. ounce. You know, they've dug up uh, when when Great Britain was Roman. They've in recent times they've dug up like stores of value from. They they do that all the time. They dig up. They do a housing development. They find some some guy stored a box full of gold coins because he was trying to escape the barbarian hordes in in Great Britain. Some Roman. You can still spend. That's probably worth more. So just before we move on from my therapy session, we've determined you just hold your positions and just get ready for the nut punch. I think, yeah, I, I don't think you, you I don't okay. think, I think you don't want to be, you don't want to have any toy with selling calls. You don't want to have any leverage. You don't want to have anything that's like unlimited downside. You don't want to have um, any need to fund anything. You just want to be, have a little bit of cash. And I think at some point you'll see some prices that are just so stupid you know, it'll be like a 2009 bottom where you're like cash trading for less than cash and you're getting pretty close at that point. And then but, you sell the stuff that you held through the nut. nut yeah. Right, then you, then you <laughs> to buy, buy that. It. Like at uh, what point are you selling is the question. Are you just never selling? You, you're selling six months when, ago, dummy. When well, I, was <laughs> yeah, I know a year, more than a year ago. Whoa, whoa, I thought we had all agreed on this never sell principle. And now everybody's selling their stuff and going against historically. We, yeah. We had I, a d- decree here. For all the making fun of myself, I actually, I got my grandma pretty cashed up four months ago and that's turned out to look like a pretty decent idea. So um, I did manage risk in that way. Did you get her boozed up first and then get her? No, she can't drink much anymore, man. I guess she was like, she was, she's, she's lucid every day, but she had like a really good Saturday. And I guess at the end of it, she just looked at the guy that helps her out and she's like, Robert, I want to fucking drink. He was like, so I gave her a drink. I said, good. That's what you should do in that scenario. Give her two. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. All right, Toby, let's hear your stuff. Let me, let me, let me do uh, this. So this was a Steve Clapham. Um, He's got the two works. uh, It's Amundi. I don't know how to say that, but Amundi Asset Management, Revisiting Quality Investing. It's a hundred page paper from last year. Not going to give you the whole thing, but um, they they break down quality into four different quadrants, and then they use two. They use sorry. two. Um, yeah, sorry. You, yeah, probably expected me to read the whole thing out. They break it down into four quadrants: profitability, safety, earnings, quality, and investment. Uh, so I like that. And then they use two factors for each of the. What do you mean, investment metrics. reinvestment? So that well, I'll give you their definition. I'll give you their definitions, and then. 
so the, just the start reading the paper. We'll all fall asleep and it'll be done. <laughs> Some of this might be useful. Well, well equity like is good as zero. Uh, I got to say, I'm loving being on the other side of this transaction. <laughs> so all the, right, Toby, start reading. Profit. <laughs> I got to get myself one of those. <laughs> Profitability is uh, gross profits to total assets and cash flow return on invested capital. Yeah, that own. makes sense. Uh, safety, long-term debt to equity, working capital to assets. Those are good ones. And they use two for More each one. More is better. Yeah, that's the way. Investment, asset growth, uh, just year on year and CapEx to sales as okay. a measure of CapEx, I guess. And then earnings quality is um, accruals, um, which which is one of, and they, they use two, Sloan accruals and cash flow accruals. Basically, they, they find that if you use the two metrics together, you get a better read on, because you get, this is the, the, you know, there's a little bit of discretion, the construction of financial accounts, um, and then try to compare apples to apples is, is tough. So they use a couple and they get, Basically, they find that some of these factors are better than others. They're the ones that I've looked at these in the past, and there's a little. It's it's a little bit messy. It's not as clear as it could be. The profitability is a very strong factor. Anyway, the the focus of all these things together just it does deliver a fair bit of uh, alpha um, over time. I, I like it as a nice balance against value. Um, the papers are. Let me just let me just give you the names of the papers so you can go and read these for yourselves. But Amundi Asset Management. And then uh, there's another one about the persistence of returns, which is an Invesco study, which is not public yet, but it's it's coming out anytime soon. Basically, same findings. That quality has its place. Um, I think quality's a little bit beaten up now, so I'm sort of uh, feel good about that. Yeah, well, I, I don't I don't feel good about it so much as, I, but I think that there's Jake and I were talking about this just before we came on. Like the the there are some. Uh, there, there are going to be some good names that come out of that very high growth. Uh, those new, not new economy, but you know what I mean. Like the the better businesses that are, everything that ran up over the last few years that people were, you don't have to worry about the valuation. Just look at the quality of the business. Well, clearly, I don't agree with that, but I do think that there are some of these are going to be very good businesses, and you want some way of finding the ones that are the higher quality ones and ignoring the ones that are dog shit. And this is a good way of doing it, I think. And then if you apply some value sort of considerations to those, I think that out of that basket of all of those really good companies that everybody was chasing, like at a considerably lower valuation, like down 90%, which many of them are now. There was a, I, I tweeted this out the other day. That the destruction in some of those names is just unbelievable. Apron down about 98%. Blue Apron's down 98%. I don't know that that was quality. That's 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 bullshit. That one, but I, I know some people who are in it, so I like to bring it up every now and again. The other one was um, uh, Groupon. Not that that was ever quality either, but that's that's down about ninety-seven percent too. So that, I wouldn't touch either of those ones. But there are other things in there that are like down ninety percent. They are high-quality businesses. They're probably worth taking a look at. I'm not going to tell you which ones they are. You can go and dig them up yourselves. But Shopify down eighty, well 78 percent. I like I like Shopify as a business. I don't know where I want to buy it, but. I do like it. Five twenty sixty six on February twenty first, twenty twenty. Today on offer for three hundred one eighty nine. Going to zero. Don't bid yet. Shop. <laughs> yep. What's shop worth? Zero. Uh, shops. I like shoppers. Like if you like a um, 
I like if you like the distributed Amazon, I think that shops a lot more. Now, shops got a lot more sort of incentives working for it than Amazon does because there's every person who runs their own shop is is heavily incentivized to grow that little business, whereas Amazon has other problems going on. And then that that thing where you, you go to each site, but it, it recognizes who you are because you've previously shopped through Shopify. That's incredibly powerful. And I like Toby. Uh, Toby, He look, just yeah. had an interesting, uh, they just approved super voting shares for life for him. They can't help themselves. What a shame. Where, Makes one ask themselves. ESG. <laughs> now, why, why would he ask for that now? That's interesting. Why would he yeah. ask for that now? He's, he's worried that the valuation is going to get to a level where someone could bid for it. Yeah, Dropbox is a good one. Dropbox has got some religion. Dropbox, it's a zero two, but let's see. DBX has got free cash flow, so DBX is probably going to be. Yeah, it's an equity. It's a zero. <laughs> That's what we've established today. <laughs> yes, yeah, so equities are going to zero. The if they go to zero, I'm going to buy a lot of them. All the world's equities. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Anyway, that's my two cents. I sort of think that... Um, I wish I could tell you that I'd buy them, but I'll probably have blown everything buying them on the way down that I too will be at zero trying to barter my body. Probably one of the mistakes that... For a share of Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. JT probably probably going to dump you in this too, mate, but we were, we were like... Uh, <laughs> we were um, momentum value guys and we got started off in this in the mid-2000s. And I think if you look back at value versus growth like this is my simple way of doing it but there were when when jake wrote his 2014 paper about value being the worst opportunity spread in like 25 years should have bought high quality stuff then the other time to do it was in the early 2000s just after everything got sold off so i sort of think that value is probably going to bounce out of that you know we've got a junky terrible market coming up here for the next six to 12 months if we're lucky and then Value is going to rip out the other side. And then through that period of time, I think you want to be trying to find some of these better quality businesses that you can get for not much, lots of upside optionality. Anyway. Doesn't it kind of feel like everyone knows it's going to suck for the next six months, in which case, if everyone knows it, it, well, yeah, how will it, how is that going to come to pass? I don't know that people are bearish enough. I think that saying they're not voting with money as much in that way, right? Is that, well, dude, like they're still pretty long equities and, you could say it's going to be like kind of a shitty market, but guess who still has inflows? Maybe that's the uh, the question. Does Ark still have inflows? Last I saw, yeah. Well, like, good for them. Be... They're buying down. Can you imagine though? Uh, dollar not... cost average. I can't imagine buying up. I can't imagine buying down. I can't imagine buying. <laughs> it's all a zero. I, I do. I do think. We could go a lot lower, a lot. Because I just think you get face ripping rallies, though, in the middle of that, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have a dozen dead cat bounces before this is all said and done. Yeah, you got to have enough to make everybody hate their lives. And I don't think we're there yet. The the bear market's not over until everybody's blown up, long and short. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how it works, (laughs) but you can't be long or short through a bear market. It just doesn't, you, you can't make money on either side. Where's all the money go? <laughs> I don't know. Where did it come from? Where did it come from and where did it go? 
Cotton Eye Joe. I don't know. Yeah, it's a Cotton Eye Joe market. <laughs> and somehow you may end up with with taxable gains at the end of it all. That's that's You're it. Like, wait, that's how it. the fuck did that it's happen? All, you get all these short term gains and you make no money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how dumb would it be looking if we actually taxed non transaction events oh like they God. were like they were talking about? And then right now you have to be cutting a check. What what idiotic whoever introduced that idea? <laughs> While tax receipts were at all-time highs, by the way. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. In fairness, we were still mega deaf. So JT, do you want to have a do you want to do your uh do you want to do your bit? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Um so I mean this this uh this little segment comes uh credit to John Chu who sent me a write-up on and on it as he's gotten into metal detecting and he thought it might be interesting. And I, and, uh, me traveling, uh, I was kind of busy. I didn't have time to do as much as I normally do. So I thought, Hey John, you're in, we're going to run with the metal detecting. So, you know, you guys know, like Buffett's famous talking about going through the Moody's manual, like a Geiger counter, just running it over and, uh, looking for, for value. And so, you know, that's thinking about metal detecting, not that dissimilar from Geiger counter. Uh, but so apparently metal detectors date back to the shooting of president James Garfield in July of 1881. And one of the bullets lodged inside his body and they couldn't find it. So, uh, Alexander Graham Bell shows up and he cobbles together this electromagnetic metal locating device that he called, uh, whatever. And, uh, what, what did he, what did he call it? Induction balance. I mean, metal detector. That's never he's, so. Yeah, as you're entering the matrix, so we may ask you a couple oh, times to repeat am I yourself. Sorry, this shit hotel Wi-Fi. Sorry. Um, it's okay. I know Buffett doesn't pay for Wi-Fi. No, exactly. <laughs> Get in the closet, gimp. So uh, the bullet wasn't found, and the president later died. But the Bell's device did work correctly, and so he's kind of credited with coming up with the first electromagnetic uh, metal detector. How did so, I know it worked? I don't know. I mean, it, it beeped. Didn't find the bullet. <laughs> yeah. It's in his body. We found the bullet. It uh, beeped somewhere. Can, yeah. Can you, get, can you get higher resolution than that? No, we found it. It's in this room with us. So uh, like one of the first things about a, a metal detector, how it works is that this important, these equations that JC Maxwell put down uh, and we're actually like very, very intelligent and yet they're incredibly simple. But what they show is that is this connection between electricity and magnetism and you know the power plant is basically a generator which is like a big drum of copper wire uh and when the wire rotates at a high enough speed you get this magnetic field and then electricity is induced in that in that field it would then like push through the wires and then basically the reverse process is done with a motor at your house when you turn on your vacuum cleaner uh and so there's there's always magnetism and there's always electricity and they go hand in hand you can't really separate them so um, the, uh, so when like, a, how an, a metal detector actually works is that it has this battery on it and then down is an a, a mag electromagnetic field and it actually like will activate a magnetism within metal, which it then reads in a different part of it. So it, it induces a, 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 a magnetism to the metal and then just detects that magnetism. So that's how you end up with, uh, um, being able to see into the dirt um, using through electricity. So 
um, typically like the, the, uh, a higher frequency will be more sensitive to, to smaller targets and a lower frequency will go deeper and, and be, but you require more like larger targets. Um, so I, like the first thing I thought about for that, like from an investing context was that, um, <laughs> you know, the amount of time or work that you put into an idea. And maybe like, you know, if you're just doing a lot of little ideas, kind of small targets, you know, maybe you wouldn't go as deep into it. So it'd kind of be, uh, you'd be able to process a lot more of them, right? It'd be sort of a higher frequency of work. Whereas if you're really digging deep into something like for a big target, um, you know, you'd kind of be doing that on a lower frequency because you just don't have time to be, you know, researching a thousand things like that uh, in super depth. Um, when you're going that deep, should you also have the uh, study of horse handicappers and the amount of information that they're given, like framed on your office, or is it justified to go that deep? It's <laughs> uh, yeah, a real question for you. I'm I'm interested in your take. Uh, do we have to have that? I don't. I'm in, you know, I just find it's easy to like, when you're going that deep to forget that study. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think that there probably is some diminishing returns eventually um, on the amount of work Uh, where that is, I think is, is really difficult to say. And maybe we'll get into this a little bit more when we talk about like the sensitivity of when you find something. Can I ask Um, you a follow-up? Shoot. Would journalistic help? Do you think like journal, like where you think you may be hitting the law of diminishing returns? And then you, I, I don't know. The problem is I don't know how you get enough reps, right? And isn't yeah. huge, but I think that would be an interesting thing to start like journaling about on the investment journey, right? Like maybe I'm hitting the law of diminishing marginal returns. For sure. Especially uh, if, and when we build out the time tracking elements of it, where you can start to see in my, in my next marginal minute, is it better spent researching that idea that's currently at call it like 60% uh, and I want to push it to 80 and that's kind of where the sweet spot is, or is it spent on finding the next new idea? Where is the return going to like maxim be maximized from? And eventually you'll be able to see um, like, wow, like once I get past about 10 hours worth of work on an idea, let's say, uh, I'm starting to really run against diminishing returns there. And I probably would be better off spending the next marginal minute uh, working on a new idea um, or pushing yeah. another one that's closer to to that 10 hour mark. Uh, or having like someone more junior search for this information rather than me. Like my time could be used in a higher and better use. Right. Oh, um, that's interesting. All right. But, sorry. I didn't mean to break it up, but I do think it was a good tangent. Yeah, no, I think it is. I think, it, I mean, I think about it a lot for myself too, with, you know, limited amount of time and how do I best use that time so that I get sort of maximum efficiency out of what, um, what I'm capable of. Okay. So, you know, the size and shape and the type of a buried object is, is, you know, obviously the bigger it is, the, the, uh, the easier it is to find. Right. Um, and then, but also the orientation of the object can really match. Like, so if you have a coin that is turned on its side, it's less likely to register than if it's like buried flat. Um, So that kind of has me thinking about like, you know, there are some financial statements that are just impenetrable and really hard to, to figure out and almost feel like the, you know, like they're a coin turned on their side and almost like, it's almost impossible to try to figure out what's going on there. And then there's other ones that are super simple. Toby, we criticized by category on this show. Uh, 
I agree. Um, but, and then there's other ones that are obviously like, just the, like they make perfect sense. Like you, it's easy to understand the business and they're therefore probably quite a bit easier to detect. Um, another thing that happens a lot is like, uh, knowing your location of where you're digging. Um, because you know, some, this is what makes the beach such a good place to metal detect is that one people lose stuff there often and they're there for leisure. Typically the sand will quickly cover it up and hide whatever it was. And then it's easy to dig the sand, uh, when you actually go and find it. Whereas if you're, you know, hunting in granite, um, you know, one, it probably doesn't get penetrate into the granite. So the pe person can find it easier Two, It's like impossible to dig. Um, three, you know, people may or may not be doing leisurely things there. So there's like, I think that same sort of mindset of where are you looking, um, in places that you know, that where you're digging might matter more. Right. So for instance, you know, I think sometimes the, the like really big banks, like they're sometimes their financials are kind of opaque to me. Um, and okay. So that'd be like, gosh, it's super hard to dig into this and actually like understand what's happening often. Um, or like Brookfield, like you said, Toby, um, might be fall into that category. Uh, that's just tough digging. Right. And there's other places where you're digging is probably going to be easier. Um, <clears throat> quick story with, uh, so when I was like probably 18, 19 in that age range, uh, my dad and I would go to this place where, yeah, um, on the river, the river rafters would stop at this, this rock that looks like a gorilla's head and they would climb up the top of it and jump in. And, um, <clears throat> So my dad and I would go and get scuba tanks and we would go like along the bottom of the river there and just find all kinds of stuff, like lots of change, tons of sunglasses, sometimes like a, not a, like a decent watch every once in a while. Um, but it's because, you know, it's people are doing things, they lose it and then you get a chance to find it. Uh, and they're not going to most likely go down to the bottom to go retrieve it. Um, so <clears throat> I think sometimes, like I was thinking, you know, having that scuba sort of an advantage um, the average person looking through might not have. So that might be, um, mental models of the world that lets you go places and understand things that, that others maybe couldn't understand. And I bet there's a bunch of tech people who are basically like the scuba divers of this, this story right now that I don't have their skills. And so like, I can't go mine the, the treasures that they can potentially, uh, in that particular area. So knowing where your scuba set is taking you is, is probably important. All of just another roundabout way of saying like circle of competence. It's probably a good argument for being able to go through incredibly complex financial statements like Brookfield's and being able to, you know, if once you, you, you got to conquer Brookfield once to figure out what those financial statements say, and then you just have to update your model and you're probably okay there and you've got an advantage. The only thing is that it strikes me that there's a lot of really smart guys in Brookfield and I don't know if I really want to compete with those guys. I think they're just easier stuff, easier things to do to your point. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, one of the thing the one of the problems when you're metal detecting is that you run into like, there's just trash, like there's, you know, nails and, you know, just garbage buried all over the place and it, it will give you a false signal that there's something there and so the way to do that is to tune you can tune your the detector to like avoid a certain like frequency range or a certain like you know profile of of signal that it's detecting um i think that we also could do that um in our digging through ideas and like just knowing like, okay, I'm never, I'm not going to figure this one out. This is going to be too hard. I'm going to tune those frequencies out. And I'm not even going to like let those 
you know, take up any of my, my bandwidth. Um, I think that's, so just sticking to your spots again, another way of saying it. I tweeted this thing up this morning from Monish Pabrai about talking to Charlie Munger about one of the ideas that he had and uh, his credit acceptance. And he said, uh, he looked at it and he thought it looked really good. I was charging lots of money for it. And Charlie said, no, I don't like it because I don't like charging those high rates of insurance. He likes win, win, win. And I think that that's, I think that more than anything else, that I think that model is really useful, that win, win, win as a, as a sort of discretionary approach to stuff because there's, there's lots of things out there where you've got this uh, long right tail of liability attached to it yeah. that may not manifest in any kind of short enough time frame to get an idea what it looks like normalized. But every now and again, and I think there are a few other like the, the credit card like synchrony and stuff like that. Like synchrony probably looks a lot better than synchrony is cheapish at the moment. It'll, it screens pretty cheaply, but if it comes up in your screens, like the risk is that you go into a nasty recession, a nasty bear market. And, and then who knows what it looks like. And I know that they're really careful. I know all that, that they look interesting and it does look really interesting. I haven't decided, but I, I still think that it's, there's just too much risk in something like that. Like that they can, that's a sort of business model. that. Yeah. I mean, probably the, the, one of the better examples of that would have been like for-profit education, uh, you know, five to 10 years ago where, boy, these guys are making a lot of money, but they are clearly not win-win for the whole ecosystem. Like the students are getting very questionable uh, results, uh, not translating to jobs like they say they're going to, racking up a bunch of debt. Um you know, I mean, and, it, and one of those, it's like anything, like not any, only the for-profit colleges. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the only thing on something point. like <clears throat> credit acceptance, <clears throat> and I don't own it. I've been thinking about it actually a lot lately, but even people that I know that are financial analysts can't quite figure out how they do what they do. But, you know, like I do think there's a very, very, uh, I think the argument has merit that people like that have to exist in the system and that people that have fallen on hard times do deserve the opportunity to rebuild their credit and get a car. And that if you shut down someone like them and you shut down people's access to cars, you like really, I mean, yes, no doubt people get hurt through predatory lending. On the other hand, I think that, Oh, what's up kids. Uh, on the other hand, I think that, oh, what's up, old man? Uh, <laughs> I think you uh, actually do give people the chance to build back. Uh, you know, I don't know. My conversation, you know, the conversation that I had with Tyrone B. Ross really sort of uh, was one of those that changed how I looked at a situation. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying shut them down. I'm just, I'm just wondering. Yeah, no, I know you're not. I'm just saying. And I, I, I have I'd be interested to have that follow up with Charlie. I've got, and I saw someone just raise this here. I've got, I've got Meta in my uh, portfolio at the moment, and I think Meta is one of those ones that's like right on the cusp of. Um, I, I don't know if it's win-win-win. Like I, 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 I don't know. Get out of here with this nonsense. <laughs> but I like Instagram, so I use Instagram. I mean, the problem with Meta is that people in general kind of suck. And it introduces you to their brains. And unfortunately, there's so a lot of them are like sharing politics. You know, if you walk down the street talking to everybody about politics, you probably hate 90% of the people that you met. That's a good point. I mean, that's the same problem that Twitter's got, right? Yeah. Twitter's got a lot of the drive-by trolls and uh, 
you know, lots of silliness on it too. And like, you know, then there's, you get into the disinformation thing, but like disinformation has always been a thing. And I'm not sure that if you centralize the distribution, you actually reduce the disinformation. You just kind of call disinformation information. And that's arguably even more dangerous. Like, I just, I don't know. These are very freaking complicated problems. Very there's, there's, complicated. Only, there's two types of information in the world. There's propaganda and disinformation. Disinformation is anything that's not propaganda. Yeah. I'm, I'm the older I get, the more I'm starting to see life through that lens. It's a bit cynical, but I think it's not wrong. Do you think it's cynical? I, I think it's accurate. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I, I guess, uh, I think it assumes a little bit of the worst of how people use media, but Fair I think enough. that that, but I think that is actually reality. There's plenty like of something that was interesting. When did Toby go by, go on and best like the best? I don't know. Two, three, four weeks ago. Who, when did who? they have the vote on the supermajority voting shares? Uh, Toby, you know, Toby Lutke. Yeah. On investing. Like, what's next? Like, like, it's just one of these things of like, why? I just, I kind of wonder when I see things happen, you know, why, why is this now? And it's just kind of interesting when news follows. That was, uh, that, that was one of the, one of the best sort of mental models or one of the best sort of ideas that was, um, oh, now I'm blanking on his name. Uh, epsilon theory. Why yeah. am I seeing this now? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, if Toby called me and was like, yo, I want to hold myself out on your show so that you can get like great PR. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Like I'm not, <laughs> you, you know, want. yeah, that's right. Tell Special me about the ratings, segment. bro. Yeah. But you know, it's, it is real. Uh, Do you see Druckenmiller's bearishness? To be fit, like I love Druck, and I, I, I flip quick. I think a lot. I try to. I, I, I often agree with what Druck says. So I'm. I saw that he was. I saw that he came out and he was bearish. But I agree with Druck all the time. But as as you say, he he doesn't necessarily trade the way he's the way he's talking. I think he probably does. I just think he flips quick, and that's uncomfortable for people. Like I think he will go on CNBC, say one thing, and then change his mind two hours later, and not feel the need to update what he said at all. Does he move it around as much as that? Oh, I think he has high, high turnover. I, I like the thing that he, the thing that I've heard him talk about that I think is uh, attractive about macros. He's like, you know, I uh, distressed, distressed debt. He's like, I haven't touched distressed debt in a decade, and then all of a sudden I see some distressed debt opportunities around. I go and pick up some of that. You know, he just, he's just like wherever there's go anywhere. Yeah, wherever there's something interesting, that's what he's wanting. That's what he wants to do. I don't know how much of the macro prognostication feeds in i did find it a little troubling when he was talking about uh, how he doesn't have there's no analog for today in his kind of historical models of what it looks like dude from goldman sachs said the same thing at bernstein what what, what are they what are they what's so different from any other time that they that that's what they feel i mean aside, aside from you know epic levels of government debt and fighting empire and all that sort of stuff and global pandemic and reopening and i mean there's a lot of shit out there <laughs> aside from war, that how war, in you, war in ukraine <laughs> yeah. making commodities spike or contributing to maybe not making you know it's just there's a lot putin saying he wants to put the soviet union back together like out loud really i haven't heard that one that was the rumor that i heard i think he said something like yeah, he's, I, I've, he's definitely said something like they, they want the Ukraine back. 
Well, I, I think, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I was a little concerned that his verbiage extended beyond Ukraine. Well, that the Soviet Union, yeah, that definitely did. They just want the buffer states. Oh, that's all nasty. <laughs> but I could be wrong. I get all my news on Facebook. <laughs> uh, full circle. Um, do you want to do some macro bullshitting? Sure. Along with fit. So let's let's do markets in turmoil. Let's do uh, let's let's see. I we, prefer equities to zero to markets in turmoil, but I'm okay with calling it markets in turmoil. What do you, what do you think about uh, Michael Green's thesis that you know crack up boom and then the bust is that like at what point is that sort of um, confirmed or invalidated? I think once you see index selling. That's that's I think the real test of well we're down twenty percent we're like official bear market now yeah that doesn't count yet I think what are the flows I think I think there's still net inflows aren't there I don't know yeah I think I think you'd need to see like a couple weeks of net outflows to test it because I think a lot of his theory is that in the bus there's going to be no liquidity under the market if people aren't aren't if there's no if there's not a bid on the index there's not like in, there's not enough individual value stock pickers out there to to fight just the flow of money out and i i that's kind of interesting to me i that would not shock me if that's the case yeah, but but that- so okay maybe i don't understand what he was saying but how did he's talking about like infinity type of yeah. up before we didn't get there no, we were pretty. I mean, in the melt up, it was no. pretty high. It's high, but we didn't like we didn't get over Japan in '89. Yeah. We we certainly didn't get that. The marginal share costs infinity, and then right. the moment after the marginal share costs infinity, the there's the marginal share goes to zero. Well, that, that's the thing that I could never get understand. Like if you if you're, it's just the sort of thing that a markets person that like if you're a market operator. And what you care about is the movement in the stock price, then that sort of appeals. But if you're looking at these things as businesses, I if they get really, really cheap, that's the best thing that happens. And I don't care if they keep on getting cheaper after that. If there's a point where you're buying it at like some, you're getting some silly free cash flow yield and it keeps on getting cheaper and they're buying back stock, like what do I care? Yeah, they, yeah, they gotta be returning the capital to you. And then I agree with your statement. Well, I don't think they even have to be returning the capital. Like I'm, I'm, I deliberately said di- uh, free cash flow yield, not dividend yield. There, like yeah. if the free cash flow yield is, but you said buying in the shares. Possibly, I did. You did. You might, you might have me there, but they don't have to necessarily even be doing that. If, let's say they're reinvesting and they're growing the value. What? Why do I care what happens with the share price? Uh, I don't know, man. You can get yourself in some trap capital type, but, but look at agency the, cost things. You know, the the Motley Fool used to run this ad for years I'm big on and this. years. The Motley Fool used to say, you know, you could you could have bought Tootsie Roll or you could have bought IBM. And IBM was always expensive and Tootsie Roll was always cheap. And if you looked at that over like decades, you made so much more money out of Tootsie Roll because you're buying it cheaply as it progressed along. Like you just, you participate along with the business. And with IBM, it was so expensive. You could just never get enough of it to be, to make a meaningful difference. I would rather that things are cheaper than more expensive even if they stay cheap, I think you make more money that way. Got to have management teams that you trust, in my opinion. 
Because otherwise, I just think that you get into these yeah. things where people like pay themselves yeah. and then they're flying around in a jet and like yeah. the cash is just illusory. It's in some glass box that you get in 20 years. Yeah, I agree. Theoretically, like I don't, I don't like those. I'm sort of assuming, yeah, that's fair. I'm assuming that this is a management team who you like. I'm not, because if we just went through all the management teams who are just ripping people off, like you can, there's a lot of those guys out there and you don't want to be anywhere near those things. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I was having a uh, discussion with a microcap guy, and he's like, a lot of people like microcaps because they're cheap. But I would argue to you that a lot of microcaps deserve to be cheap because the management teams behind the microcaps. Well, they just so, they're just not as experienced. They don't have the resources. They're they're, they're less. They're, you know, they're just as a group, they're lower quality businesses than mid cap and large cap, and you can see that reflected in the returns on equity. You know that, that you can see that reflected in lots of different ways. Like the valuations are just. That they're worth less, even even now where they're really really cheap. I still think the expected returns from small and micro. This is ignoring the the multiple, like the, the small and micro is like small and micro at right the, right now is as cheap as it has been in the last like twenty or thirty years. We're at like two thousand and nine low, two thousand low kind of cheapness for small and micro. Even so, if you're just ignoring the multiple movement, because at some point these the multiples are going to expand and they're going they're going to do really well. But the businesses, if you didn't get that multiple expansion, the businesses aren't going to do as well as mid cap and large cap because they are better quality businesses. You just got to pay a premium for those two that might reflect the, the, the higher quality. Like there might be sort of comparable opportunities at this point. Maybe even my mid cap is a little bit better. I think so that's sort of my, my rough view of it at the moment. Yeah. I think that's probably right. Sounds reasonable. There's probably probably you could go through those small and micro and dig out the things that are really good. Just I always wonder like why is something still small and micro after all of this time? Like if it's been out there and it's doing really good stuff, why hasn't it got bigger? It's either got some problem with the market's just not that big. That's the B short quote. No, no business is small because it wants to be. Brent B short. Yeah. Smart man. Has a decent amount of experience in small business. Those are tough businesses. Uh, They've just got no ment- momentum in them. You've got to wake up every day and rebuild the plane. It's not like mid cap and large cap that just sort of it's a knife they just fight keep every going. Day. Yeah, like as as Buffett says, like you can just about get any <laughs> any palooka in to run those ones, and they're, they're going to be okay. That's why they, that's why they get paid the big bucks to run those big ones because you got to get to Davos. You got to look good in a suit. Got to shake. Yeah, it out, you know, give a good speech. Kiss babies. All the hard stuff. <laughs> Good baby kissing. What, what do you guys think about uh, about the uh, the prospects for the market bottoming in that sort of Q4 kind of range? We define about, I mean, I, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think we can go a lot lower than people think. That's what I think. I think down 30 or 40 would not shock me from here. Maybe even fifty percent. Like I don't see, I don't see why that would be shocking to anybody. Yeah, I think fair value is like twenty two hundred, twenty two, twenty three hundred, something like that. That's like forty percent from here, right? That's that's forty percent from here, and then there's no reason why it stops at fair value. It did in two thousand and nine. Seemed to get down to fair value and just bounce off fair value. Yeah. Now after everything breaks, rates are going back down to zero. So get ready for that. But. Everything may break. That sort of assumes that inflation is under control by that point. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know that there's any law that mandates that rates have to be higher than inflation. I mean, if you have no economic growth, why do rates need to be high? Like there's there's no there's no law that mandates that bondholders must get paid more than inflation. You just may get your value eroded. Like there's a real chance we're in some like really shitty environment for a long time for well, capital. There's, there's no law, but as common sense. Yeah, as a as a as a debt investor, you want to be able to get back your real principal. positive. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what inflation is if we if we go bust. But you know, if, if if there's not much, but oil is the only thing that's running, right? Like say that say that we have a bust, but oil is up at 180. Like I, I don't know, do rates are rates set off of oil? Well, rates are set from what the invest well, what the central bank does, I think. And and that's sort of that's part of the reason that we're where we are. <laughs> because we're we're not fault. Like if we just applied the Taylor rule, I think we'd be in better position and we probably don't need a room, uh, the building full of PhDs then. Yeah. I, I guess um, all, all I'm thinking is there's a, a, there's a scenario where. I'll give him a 386. You can have a 386. Remember the, the 486. Oh, it's a Pentium. It's really fast. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think this scenario that I'm uh, envisioning, it would be hard to think that demand is going to be really high. I, I don't think stocks go down forty percent and life looks like it looks. Uh, most people won't even notice. You know, life goes on. When it's they get laid off, they'll notice. Well, that's not that's not a market thing. Though. That's that's a, an economy thing. That's an economy I think this thing. is all very reflexive, which is why I think this way. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of people being let go at the moment. Yeah, it may just be starting. Yeah, that's a cheery. That's note. how you crush demand. That's a cheery note to end it all. Yeah, no, I think that's what that's what oil does as well, right? Energy does that; it crushes demand, and then we reset off we go. The Fed's about a thousand points behind, a thousand basis points behind the curve, so fifty or seventy-five, not going to matter much. Equities to zero.